Hey guys, it's me, Sophia Amoruso. Yeah, it's Amoruso or Amoruso, but it's not Amoroso. Okay. <laughs> We're chatting with Emmy Award winning journalist Rebecca Jarvis about her advice on investing, how to switch careers, her podcast, and more. But first, let's talk about Lola. Lola is a female founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. Lola products are 100% natural and 100% easy to feel good about. So I don't know if you guys know, but I learned this at a very early age when I was like a crust punk living in Seattle in the U district. And I had friends who were literally making pads out of like old socks or something like reusable pads because it's true. I mean, there was very few organic tampon options out there. Mm But what you don't realize is that when you put a regular tampon in your body, you're putting a ton of bleach and Mm -hmm. processed cotton and other chemicals literally in your body to Mm -hmm. absorb over the course of however long. Hopefully you don't leave them in too long. Um, But with Lola, you can subscribe to amazing organic tampons that won't have you worried about your health Uh, and you get to choose from tampons pads liners you can subscribe you can choose the quantity of boxes and you can select your shipment frequency so you don't have to go to the drugstore and have some weird guy stare down at your tampons and put it in a paper bag like you should be ashamed. Mm-hmm. And we have Lola in the girl boss offices. We do. We use them. Mm-hmm. We're and, all women. And we all really love them. And with Lola, you know your purchase is going to a good cause. For every purchase that's made, Lola donates feminine care products to homeless shelters across the U.S. Also, I do have to say, too, by the way, I subscribe to Lola myself. Oh, cool. It's so easy. Once you have a subscription, they send it to you, so you literally don't have to think about it, because I always run out of them, and I'm literally just, like, sniping a couple from my friends, my roommates, and I'm like, can I borrow one? Whereas I already have them stocked, I don't have to think about it. Yeah. So Cool. Lola is being very generous. Just for our listeners, Lola is offering an amazing discount, 40% off all subscriptions. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot. You can get this by entering code GIRLBOSS when you subscribe. That's right. For 40% off of your subscription, visit mylola.com, M-Y-L-O-L-A.com, and enter GIRLBOSS when you subscribe. That's mylola.com. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Rebecca Jarvis is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, podcast host, and ABC News' chief business technology and economics correspondent. At age 15, Rebecca was a bit of a child prodigy and was named one of teen people's 20 teens who will change the world, raising over $750,000 and giving Colin Powell a run for his money for her own nonprofit children's charity. I raced up to him. I was like, Colin Powell, Colin Powell, I have a question for you. And his handler said, I'm sorry, honey, but the general is really busy. 
and I said, General Powell, you're here to help young people, but you don't have five minutes for one of us. And he looked at me and he said, walk with me. She then went on to graduate from the University of Chicago with a degree in economics and constitutional law and started her career in investment banking and foreign currency trading. Rebecca began her journalism career writing for Cranes, Chicago Business, and Business 2.0. And I just started cold calling all of the business editors in Chicago at the time and asking them out for coffee. No pretense, just, hey, I want to hear more about your job. Can we go out for coffee? And what I would do is I had three story ideas that I took on a piece of paper with me out to these coffees. And once the conversation was kind of coming to the close, I'd just say, you know, do you mind? I have a couple of ideas that I would love to write for you. She's since worked for nearly every prestigious broadcast news organization, including ABC, NBC, CNBC, and CBS. She's conducted headline-making interviews with the biggest names in business and technology, including Warren Buffett, Richard Branson, Sheryl Sandberg, Jessica Alba, Bill and Melinda Gates, and Apple CEO Tim Cook. For anyone listening to not worry about asking the right questions, to just purely worry about asking questions. Curiosity begets curiosity, and that momentum can build on itself. And I think that the more you ask questions, the more you start to kind of refine, and it helps you get to answers, too. Today, Rebecca is here to talk about women in business, why it's so important to ask thoughtful questions, how to effectively transition careers, and her podcast, No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis, which I am on today for a special crossover series of episodes. We'll get to our chat with Rebecca in just a moment. But first, say hi to Maggie Renshaw. We're going to chat about all that's going on here at the Girlboss offices. Hey, Maggie. Hey. Uh, hey. Oh, boy. So I've been gone for almost a week. What's happening here at Girlboss? Mm-hmm. Well, we're pretty busy. We always have content rolling out. I'm going to talk about one piece in particular that I think we can all relate to as women. It's compliments. Receiving them and then how we instantly feel wrong about that, whether it's shrugging them off, shooting them down, even going to a negative place by um, saying something negative about yourself. Like, oh, no. Right. No, I do not look young for my age. Literally just happened to me yesterday. I think I, I wore makeup. Someone's like, oh, my God, your skin looks so great. It's so dewy. I was like, this isn't real. It's all makeup. Eight mm-hmm. inches deep. Mm-hmm. real skin. You don't want to see it. It's like, they didn't ask for that. They didn't need that. But you just feel like you have to make an excuse or give them a reason why. Mm-hmm. For that compliment, mm-hmm. to make it, to justify it, I don't know. Yeah, like balance it out with mm-hmm. like something self-deprecating mm-hmm. or just like, oh no, I could never say, if I say thank you, that means I agree. You know, it's kind of the flip side of when I say thank you and someone says you're welcome, mm-hmm. I'm actually like, the polite thing to say is of course, like mm-hmm. it's no sweat. Your mm-hmm. welcome is like, I acknowledge that I did something for you. This was for me. Isn't that, <laughs> to yeah. To feel better about myself, yeah. right? Yeah. Anyway, that's a that's a tangent. That's that's a whole nother ball game. Deflecting compliments may not seem like a big deal, but but it is a problem because it's causing something deep down inside of you to create this, you know, or to feel this uncomfortable reaction where you actually have to deflect. The piece was written by Rachel Simmons, and she noted a really strong study in 1990. Uh, sociolinguist Robert Herbert conducted a study that. Um, focused on sex-based differences in compliment behavior. So he found that 40% of men were able to accept compliments from other men, while only 22% of women were able to do the same when complimented by other women. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. We've gotten pretty good at doing that in the office, though, right? Complimenting? Yeah. Yeah. I and think our office is super positive. I think. And sometimes some of us do shrug it off, though. It even happens here, for sure. And we've come a long way since 1990. The way you see yourself is really what you do manifest in the world. It's true. And as I said at the last Girl Boss rally, you really do have to kind of overestimate yourself. And guys do it all day long. They're like, yo, I got this. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm God's gift to the earth because, like the whole world was like built around them mostly Mm -hmm. exactly and were we to imagine that the whole world was like here to serve us like the world would probably serve us a lot better right so it's like you have to actualize and feel positive inside as well as outside yeah so so accept those compliments go compliment yourself (laughs) so you can get better at other people complimenting you but Mm -hmm. if someone compliments you and it's actually inappropriate that's different right so I went to actually went to therapy for the like this was my second appointment and I actually really like this therapist Mm -hmm. and some guys are just maybe they're just like oh he was like I like your jumps jumper what is that and I was like it's a jumpsuit and I was just like I don't want my therapist to compliment me I just don't want a man to compliment my Mm -hmm. appearance in any way because I'm gonna sit here and talk to you he wasn't like you look great today even then, like, should I be offended? I don't know. Right. It's just like looking at your body. Yeah. Just don't like, look at me. Mm-hmm. Just listen. <laughs> just close your eyes. It takes that extra confidence to even say, hey, that compliment was inappropriate. So mm-hmm. either way, mm-hmm. get your confidence and you'll know when to accept them mm-hmm. and when not to. Yeah. And now get ready to hear from Emmy Award winning journalist Rebecca Jarvis. You grew up in Minnesota. What was that like? Well, it was cold sometimes. I had a really great childhood. We grew up in northeast Minneapolis in the city proper. Um, But in Minneapolis, you can live in the city proper and have a house and a yard and a garage and a car, which living in New York City now, I have none of those things. Yeah, Literally none of those things. I haven't owned a car ever in my life, actually. I know how to drive. But uh, (laughs) growing up in Minnesota was really a a great experience. My parents were really involved in the community and continue to be. And I have a younger sister and she and I, we argued all the time as kids. But like, I really love her. And um, she was a great partner to have because we're really close in age. We're like a year and a half apart. And uh, it was a really nice childhood. And you didn't, like, revolt at all. You weren't, were you? Rebellious? Yeah. Um, honestly, I was probably pretty in line as a kid. A little, I guess you could say, like, a little bit square. But I think for me, I definitely, especially in high school, was a total outsider. I felt like such an outsider in high school. I went to a really small Montessori school from the age of three until eighth grade. And there were 30 people in my class. And I grew up with those 30 people. And when I left and went to a high school, which was not that large, but still a new place, I felt so out of place. And I remember just, it was tough. You know, there were a lot of really hard years in the early stages of high school where I I remember one day I started walking faster because I was like, can I fast forward through this point in my life and just get to the next stop? Like, there are a lot of people, I think, who feel like outsiders in high school. And if you're one of those people right now, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, my mom would say to me a lot when I was in high school, she would say, just wait until you get to college because you'll find your people when you get to college. And um, it was hard to keep up that mentality at times, but it actually was the case. She was right. 
As a teen, Rebecca always felt like she was older than her peers and really disliked being called a kid, which makes sense because she was named one of Teen People's 20 teens to change the world at just 15 years old. Pretty mature. But still, I wondered, why did she feel this way? Rebecca revealed why she always felt like an outsider growing up and how she dealt with some of the more unsettling parts of adolescence. I was actually young for my class, but yes, in some ways, I think I probably felt, I mean, I think back to that idea of feeling like an outsider, I was looking for external outlets for my energy, especially early on. And I remember I was seeing in the newspaper in Minneapolis where I grew up, my mom's a journalist, so the newspaper was always around because she wrote for the newspaper too. And um, I saw in the newspaper there was this youth advisory council that was supposed to advise the state legislature. And this was around the time of Columbine. And I felt like, where are the young people in the solutions? Like, these solutions are not going to help young people if they're just being imposed. We have to own some of this. You know, we have to be a part of this. And I felt really strongly about that. And I ended up applying to this council, which I was telling you earlier, like, I didn't have the skill set that they were calling for. They were, you had to have like a bunch of after school activities and things like that. I didn't have all of that, but I cared about it. And again, my parents were just like, if you care about it, why not just throw your hat in the ring, see what happens? And I did. And it ended up totally changing my life. Back when I was in um, high school, there was something in, in Philadelphia called the President's Summit for America's Future. It was Colin Powell convened all the living presidents to help young people to get to, to try to think about solutions for young people in schools and stuff like that. And I remember I went to this event because of the work that I was doing, and I was also a youth reporter. The One of the issues with the event that anybody under the age of 18, and I was 15 at the time, had with the event is they talked about wanting to help young people, but there were barely any of us there. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wait, how are you going to make this happen if you don't have allies and people who are at the table who actually like are the people you're saying you want to help? And so I saw Colin Powell at one point at the conference and he was sitting a few rows up for me and it was in the middle of this session and we've all people listening might have been to a big conference room before it's like you know the lights come on and everybody runs and scatters to their next place and so I had it in my head like I have to go talk to Colin Powell if I'm here I have to go talk to him and so he's sitting there a few rows up from me and I just as the lights came on, I raced up to him. I was like, Colin Powell, Colin Powell, I have a question for you. And his handler said, I'm sorry, honey, but the general is really busy. And I looked at both of them and I said, General Powell, you're here to help young people, but you don't have five minutes for one of us. Wow. And he looked at me and he said, walk with me. And so in this conversation, yeah, I was like, he's like, shh. Walk with me. <laughs> no, but I, I give him credit because it wasn't him. It was the handler at the time who said this. And so Colin Powell and I walk and I said to him, you know, you want to help young people, but I don't see a lot of young people here. I would like to, you know, find ways to give people more ownership. Um, one of the feelings I had is that businesses should, you know, with after school programs and grants support more things. Mm hmm. 
And so, and in the community. So I ended up talking to him about that. He said, if you go home to Minnesota and you do this, I will support you. Long story short, he did. He and um, Al Gore and a number of local politicians ended up supporting our work. And we raised $750,000 for after school programs. And we changed the bus system in Duluth, Minnesota. They worked on creating a new bus schedule so that people could get around town. Mm-hmm. Um, they built a skate park in one of the communities with the funds. So it was a it was a really, for me, it was a life changing experience. And you set up a nonprofit foundation when you were 15 years old. This is it's called the Minnesota Alliance with Youth. So yes, I set it up then. I passed off the baton when I went to college because I felt really strongly that the whole idea of the thing was that it was going to be run by somebody in high school, that it wasn't going to be somebody older than that telling people in high school how yeah. to behave. Yeah. And so you went to school in Chicago. I did. And you studied, what did you study? So I studied um, constitutional law and economics. The University of Chicago had this major called Law Letters in Society. It's not a law degree, but it's for undergraduates. And I went to school. The University of Chicago is a great, has a really awesome economics program, which I always liked math. And so I sort of gravitated towards that program. But I also was really interested in the law and at points I thought maybe I wanted to be a lawyer. I ultimately decided I enjoyed the study of law much more than I think I would enjoy the practice of law. But the classes were, I mean, they were incredible. We were like looking at the First Amendment, for example, and looking at how case law, how the Supreme Court has protected the First Amendment over time. And I I just love that. I like a big debate. Like I liked those classes where the professor would really force you to be on your A-game and have to like think for yourself. In today's ever-changing economic climate and job climate, college isn't for everyone, but it clearly made a big impact on Rebecca's life and career trajectory. Rebecca opened up about how important she thinks higher education is and what the biggest benefit of it was for her and her career. There's so many different paths. Experience is so important. And it can be a two or it can be an and or situation. And for me, I think what I loved about college was that classroom experience. Mm -hmm. It was sitting with my peers, debating ideas, having to think about things, hearing different points of view in the classroom and having my mind exposed. And also as a journalist now, I think that what it really taught me is that it's so much more about the questions than it is about the answers. And asking the right questions. There's a big piece in the current Harvard Business Review about asking questions and how to ask the right questions and how to extract what you, I mean, you're a reporter, you probably know that better than anybody. But the way you ask questions, the way you frame things, I mean, that's the that's the world that's presented to you. And you get to dig a lot deeper into things and have a totally different experience when you know how to ask the right questions. And a lot of people don't even ask questions. I know. And I think... You know, I think for for me as somebody who I'm excited by asking questions, one thing I would say is for anyone listening to not worry about asking the right questions, to just purely worry about asking questions in the beginning. Because curiosity begets curiosity and that momentum can build on itself. And I think that the more you ask questions, the more you start to kind of refine mm-hmm. what those are and it helps you get to 
answers to. A lot of people are embarrassed to ask questions that may seem obvious. And yeah, one of the things I try to do on this podcast is just unpack things like venture capital or what these acronyms might be that, that our audience or anybody listening may not completely understand. And I think for anybody who's ambitious or wants to know more about the world, wants to move forward, you really have to put that aside and say, I don't really understand that. Like raise your hand and be the person in the meeting who says like, what does that word mean? And usually people admire it. Mm -hmm. They don't judge you for it. And even if it's not in that room, it's often there's a there's a time and a place where you can ask that question. And that's a service to yourself. No one's going to show up and answer those questions for you. That's such a good point. I totally agree with that. But you started out in finance. I did. So I graduated from college, like a lot of people in debt. And I knew that pursuing journalism right away, my especially coming from a family where a mom's a journalist, my mom was like, if you if you pursue this right now, you're gonna be in debt for the rest of your life. Now, I at that point in time was interested in paying off those loans, but also interested in learning a field and getting to understand another world that I could hopefully someday bring to journalism. I'd love to say there was some major grand plan where I really thought the whole thing through and it was like X, Y, and Z is going to happen. That's what it sounds like. But that's not yeah. really what it was. I mean, all of these things are in retrospect. You know, you the story, the narrative sort of evolves when you look backwards more than at least for me and my experience than looking forwards. And so it was, it was for me, Going into finance was it was painful at times, and I, I say that purely from like an hours standpoint. I mean, I was working like a hundred hour w- weeks. I had two roommates who are still great friends of mine, Deepa and Miam, and they never saw me. We used to we we lived. I was living in Chicago at the time, and every Wednesday night they would have people over to our apartment, and I didn't know this. I, I didn't know that we had like a gathering at our apartment every Wednesday night. Because I was never there until, you know, two or three in the morning. And then I would leave again at six o'clock. But I'm glad I did it in retrospect. I mean, in the moment it was painful. But what I think the biggest benefit of doing it ended up becoming, and I, I really, I think that, you know, people will often say, how do I get into journalism? Or how do I figure out what it is that I want to do? And I think for me, one of the biggest benefits of going into finance and then pursuing journalism is that it gave me a bit of an angle when I went to pitch various newspapers, because I had some background experience. Domain expertise. Exactly. Like you totally know this coming from your background. You understand business from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And that means you can be an advisor. That means you can start things. That means you can invest in things because of that foundation Mm -hmm. that you built for yourself. put in the time. Yeah. I mean, we were talking, I was talking with Patty McCord, who used to be the chief talent officer at Netflix about this. And it's the same in recruiting. You can only be as good of a recruiter as you understand the job description and can vet candidates. There's um, even with roles where you're not interviewing people or it's not journalism or it's not necessarily quote unquote business, that a kind of knowledge and putting in the hours, even if that's not ultimately the career that you want to pursue, lends itself so much to advancing yourself in your career. So did you pay off your loans? I did. 
I did. So as soon as I was at this point, it was about a year and a half into investment banking, and I was close to paying them off. I, I mean, I really did have it in my mind. I want to pay this off quickly. So I just pretty much put all of my money towards my loans at that point. And I was working all the time anyway, so it's not like I, <laughs> like I had a lot of time to put them towards anything else. But that was important to me. But at the same time, I also realized in that moment, I remember I was sitting, we were working on this deal where we were selling a lawn and garden products company that was based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I spent all this time in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania as a result. And I remember I was writing part of the sort of proposal. It's called a sell-side memo, where if you're selling a company, you write this sell-side memo. And the sell-side memo is the thing that anyone who might buy the company takes a look at to decide whether they might be interested. And I remember writing it thinking, I would so much rather be writing a story for the New York Times right now. Mm -hmm. And after saying that to myself enough times, I just decided, okay, time to move on. You have to make a move. For audience, just in case they don't know, what's an investment banker? Okay, so in investment bankers are the people who help companies do a handful of things. One, issue equity. So Apple goes public. They hire an investment bank to help them issue equity, shares of their company, stock. Once you have public stock, that's what makes you a public company. So investment bankers help companies issue stock. They help companies issue debt. And they also help companies merge and acquire each other. You're like a real estate agent for businesses. And I mean that in the, you know, it's like you're the person who connects the buyers to the sellers. Great. So I'm just curious about this because the IPO thing, it's like I've always told myself, like, I never want to IPO a business. I don't want to be a public company CEO. I just would never want that job. I wouldn't want my salary public. I wouldn't want to be public. I wouldn't want all the information about my company public. But a lot of money can be made. I mean, that's the quickest way to make the largest amount of money possible from what I understand. What is it that makes a company capable of successfully IPOing? Wow, good question. So a couple of things. First off, if you have venture capital money, which means money that came from the venture capital community, oftentimes as a founder, you're going to get pressure to go public or to sell your company because that is what's known as their exit. Like once they put money in, their only way to get paid back on that money is to either take the company public or sell the company. So there can be pressure there. So the way companies, generally speaking, prepare is they want their financials to be as sort of clean as possible, meaning they're showing growth. They have a story that makes sense. They can tell people who are going to invest in that company. We're going to keep growing. Here's why we think we're going to keep growing. They have an executive team, a founder like you, and an executive team that can speak to the public market and make people feel confidence in that company. Most companies take somewhere between five and 10 years before they can go public. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, there are some companies that do it very early. Yeah, well, and that's because I would argue because of pressure. Because they what what can happen is those venture capitalists can get antsy. 
Mm-hmm. Look at Uber, for example. Uber has a lot of venture capital money. Mm-hmm. And those venture capitalists want the biggest return possible. That's what, I mean, venture capitalists, they come into companies and that's part of their objective. Their objective is to make as much money as possible. Exactly. I mean, ideally as quickly as possible, but it usually takes a while. Yeah. And yet there can be pressure along the way to do things, like a company can face pressure to do things from their venture capitalists. I'm not trying to make venture capitalists out to be bad people. There's some great ones out there. And Mm -hmm. I think anybody or a lot of the women that I speak to on No Limits who are founders, and I'm excited to talk to you about this, is how to choose. Because who you choose in that partnership can really determine what happens to the company and how your experience is. So there can be pressure from the outside world from those venture capitalists to finally go public. And when that pressure happens, there's, again, there's kind of these two different ways that you can do it. You can either go public or you can sell. Sometimes there's pressure to sell because they know that you're not going to be able to IPO because there's just like those things that we talked about being in place aren't there. Yeah. And so someone will buy you, but probably buy you for less money than if you were to go public. But there's also the stay private forever option, which... There's a lot of companies that choose to go that path as well, but they probably didn't take outside capital. It's probably majority owned by the individual or a family or close friends and family who are willing to sit on that investment for a long time. And just pull money out of it. Just take distributions and then pay yourself out of the company. But once someone's invested, they don't really want you to have more than a salary. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. Is the multiple on an IPO, like the multiple of revenue, higher, always higher on an IPO? Or is there a general multiple or is it just totally depending it's totally on the market? totally dependent on where the market is in this moment in time, what industry the company is in. Because depending on the industry, like, for example, technology is a very different industry than agriculture, for example. And so because those industries are different, what in terms of that part of the piece, the piece of the pie that's all about the numbers is a lot of the time different. But I would say that management and who's leading a company is always going to be really important to the market. We have so much more with Rebecca coming up. But first, let's talk about Stitch Fix. So someone in our office, Tanya, actually just got a package from Stitch Fix. She did, and she um, filled out their questionnaire about her style, profile, what she liked to wear, Mm -hmm. what was her work outfit, just a bunch of different questions to tailor to get the stylist to know what she likes to wear. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she got the box really quickly. Loved it. The stylist's curations of jewelry dresses pants it just it came with five different pieces that she's been wearing it all over the office right she loves it because we've been talking about stitch Mm -hmm. fix for so long here at girl boss and we haven't all experienced it and it's so cool to see someone experience it so if you don't know what stitch fix is it gives you a productive and easy way to get the stuff you really love without ever having to leave the house. They use a mixture of a personal stylist and data to inform what it is that you're going to like and they send you a box of just that. Just fill out your style profile online and they send you what is picked just for you, your size, your lifestyle, your budget, and of course what they think you're going to like. 
And plus, you only pay for the items you actually keep. And sending everything back is super duper easy. Stitch Fix covers shipping both ways for returns and exchanges, and there's no subscription required. So get started now at stitchfix.com girlboss, and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com girlboss to try Stitch Fix today. stitchfix.com girlboss. We're going to continue with Rebecca in just a minute, but before we do, I also want to talk a little bit about Skillshare. We love Skillshare. We use it all the time. Everyone in the office is using it, mm-hmm. and well, it's easy. we get to learn all kinds of different things, again, without leaving the office, <laughs> our bed, driving to a college that... I don't know. We might not have any friends at. Save time. I don't know. That might be a personal story. But Skillshare, (laughs) if you don't know what it is, is an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. And what classes have you taken, Maggie? I took a class on Excel. It's easy to use, but there are so many different things you can do with it, which I just didn't realize. I'm a big fan of organizing lists and building out schedules, but there's just so many formulas that you can create on Excel itself I didn't know about. Took the class, feel like a pro. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right, Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. 